If someone out there is not familiar with the FIRE movement, F-I-R-E stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's about inside that movement, which is growing really rapidly, there's two different pathways of thought, I would say. One is more focused on real estate investing and the other is more focused on investing in stock markets, specifically low-cost index funds and building wealth that way. They both work. And to be honest, most people are probably using a combination of the two. That movement is just about really three things. Increasing your savings rate, so being more frugal with your spending, only spending on your needs and what you actually value. Increasing your income, there's a number of ways to do that, but a great way is with a side hustle. And then taking that money that you save, the difference between what you're earning and what you're spending, and investing it in a really smart way. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies. To help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Dan Sheeks. Dan is a high school business teacher that invests in a variety of real estate and follows the FIRE movement, but his real mission is to teach young people about financial independence through real estate investing. In this episode, Dan will tell us about how he's teaching teenagers about the core principles of financial education and how he's creating communities to help them stay accountable for their goals. We'll talk about what the FIRE movement is and what you can do to create a financial plan that will help you accomplish your financial goals. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! So Dan, I'm super excited to have you on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us who you are and tell us what you do. You bet, Sean. And first, thanks for having me. Very happy to be a guest on your podcast. I've been looking forward to it, excited. And I think what you're doing is awesome. Keep killing it out there. You're doing great stuff and I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, so my name is Dan Sheeks. I live in Denver, Colorado. Married, my wife and I are definitely full steam ahead in the real estate investing game to reach financial independence. We've been at it for probably about five years now. I actually started investing in real estate a little bit before that, but didn't get serious until about five years ago. And yeah, happy to be on the show, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into real estate investing? Sure. So like a lot of people, I got into real estate on accident. My first property that I bought, I bought it as a primary residence and I did live there for three or four years. I was house hacking, but on accident, I had no idea what that concept was or it didn't have a name back then either. But I had a friend moving to Denver from Texas and he needed a place to stay. And I bought a two bedroom townhome. So I said, Hey man, come live with me. I and pay me some rent. That just made sense. Right? So we did that for a few years. I ended up moving out of that place. And when I did, I kept it and turned it into a rental. So I rented it out for probably seven or eight years before I sold it and basically just upgraded that into another property here in Colorado. But as far as my background, um, so that was my introduction to real estate. And when I met my wife about five years ago, like I said, we really kind of, I like to say it was a one plus one equals five when it comes to real estate. We both had 
some interest in real estate. She had done more deals than I had, but when we got together, we really kind of fed off each other's interest and excitement for real estate investing. Now, my full-time job, I'm a high school teacher. I've been doing that here in Denver for 17 years. I love my job, completely in love with my job. I have great kids, great school. I'm a business teacher, so I teach elective classes, and those tend to be entrepreneurship, personal finance, and marketing. And I've been doing that, yeah, for 17 years. So definitely, I love working with young people. I love the concept of personal finance. I definitely like the FI movement or the FIRE movement, whichever you prefer, taking personal finance to a whole other level and allowing people to reach financial independence at an early age, younger than much younger than 65. So I'm all on board for that stuff. And then real estate investing is mixed into all that as well. Yeah, that's so awesome because I wish I had a teacher like you when I was in high school because we didn't learn anything about financial independence. We didn't learn even how to like balance a checkbook in high school. Yeah, it's sad. I, I don't know if you want to go off on this tangent, but I, I can talk for hours about how disappointing it is that our high school graduates in this country don't get personal finance education. I shouldn't say none of them. There, there are some states and, and some students who do get that education, but, but the vast majority don't. They come out of high school completely having to fend for themselves when it comes to money, which is, it's sad. It's actually not just sad. I think it's a disservice, but that's the system we have now. And so I do what I can to change it. And yeah, I love you know teaching personal finance. And I have speakers from the community come into my classroom and talk about real estate investing, frugality, house hacking, earning extra income, side hustles, that kind of stuff, how to reach financial independence at an early age. So hopefully it sinks in some for my students, just like any other subject. Some of them really grab onto it and some of them it's in one year and out the other, but I at least give them the information and they can decide how they want to use it. Exactly. Like I remember in my economics classes, I was so fascinated by it because before this point, I've never heard anything about you know stock market or bonds. And I was so intrigued, you know, but then I had some classmates who didn't care. And I was thinking like, why don't you care? This is, this seems really important. This seems really interesting. Yeah. I think like anything else, we all have our own path and we all have, we all come around to certain concepts in our own time and nobody can force anybody to do things or learn things. It really has to be a personal choice. So yeah, I think my mission is just to make sure that young people have information about financial independence, but then in the end, it's really up to them if they want to use that to their advantage or, or not. And, and you know, the, the typical path of the American dream where one works for 45 years and retires at 65, although, you know, you and I and your listeners may think that's antiquated and not a very smart way to, it works, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. And if people want to do that, then go for it. But I prefer other options, so... Yeah. And for those who don't know, do you want to tell them what the FIRE movement is? And like, what are you telling these kids who are in your classrooms? Yeah, good question. If someone out there is not familiar with the FIRE movement, F-I-R-E stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's about inside that movement, which is growing really rapidly. There's two different pathways of thought, I would say. One is more focused on real estate investing and the other is more focused on investing in stock markets, specifically low-cost index funds and building wealth that way. They both work. And to be honest, most people are probably using a combination of the two as well as you know, my wife and I are doing the same thing. But that movement is just about really three things, increasing your savings rate. So being more frugal with your spending, only spending on your needs and what you actually value, increasing your income. There's a number of ways to do that, but a great way is with a side hustle and then taking that money that you save, the difference between what you're earning and what you're spending, 
and investing it in a really smart way. And again, that could look like an index fund, or it could look like real estate investing, or it could be starting a business. And there's some other ways to do that too. But if you do it right, you can really fast forward your the time frame to get to a place where you are financially independent and thus, quote unquote, retire early. But I think most people in the FIRE movement would say, and friends of mine who have reached financial independence, once they do that, they're typically not the type of people who just stop working and watch Netflix all day or sit on a beach drinking a margarita all day. They're still doing stuff. They're still very active. But the great thing is you get to choose how you spend your time at that point, teaching, giving back, volunteering, educating others, as well as you know, maybe continuing to make some income for yourself. So that's the FIRE movement. I think you had a second part, Sean, but I forget what it was. Sorry. Like what are you teaching the students? Oh yeah, my classroom. So I teach them basic fire stuff, like kind of like I just mentioned, the concept of frugality and spending money on things that you value, but not spending on things on money on things that you don't. So as they go off to say college or their next step in life, because I, I may mostly teach juniors and seniors in high school. Most are headed to college, but not all. You know, I say when you're in college, you know, if you can get by living in a house with a bunch of roommates, do that to save money. Or if you know, if your friends are going out to an expensive dinner. Find a way that you can maybe just order an appetizer instead of an entree. Or if you're going to get a car, try to get a used car that's still reliable instead of buying a new car or a, a very close to new car. So there's a lot of different ways that you can save money. So I teach them about that. I have taught them the concept of house hacking. And a goal I have, and my students take it on sometimes too, is that by the time they, before they graduate from college to buy their first property, house hack it in college and live with some of their friends in that property. And then once they graduate from college, they can keep that property as a rental or sell it and start building their wealth through real estate. House hacking is, if your listeners are familiar, which I think they are, is in my opinion, the best real estate strategy for young people who are looking to start getting into real estate investing. It's pretty safe, low money needed to get into a house hack. And you learn tons in the process because you're generally managing the property yourself as the landlord. So I highly recommend house hacking. So I definitely teach that to my kids. And I teach them how to invest, basic investing principles for any money that they do want to save and put away. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think house hacking is one of the best things to do. And when I was in college, I was actually in a fraternity where we didn't have our own, you know, quote unquote house. So we had to rent out different apartment buildings all across Los Angeles every single year. And when I did the calculations, I was like, Dude, we spent over $120,000 combined per year. In rent, wow. Yeah, it was like 5000 for each unit. We had two like big spots. I'm like, why don't we just buy one of these our own, on our own, right? Like $120,000, you know, does a lot for a mortgage. So. And then you're building equity. You know, whoever owns that property is building equity over time, either through appreciation or the tenants paying down the principal of your mortgage. Not to mention, hopefully it's cash flowing as well. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of real estate, obviously. And, and I opened the door to that opportunity to my students as well and introduced them to how to get started with that. And that's one thing I'm really passionate about is teaching young people that they can, and maybe oftentimes should invest in real estate, even at a young age. I'm working with a group of young people who I've met through different blogs and forums. And we meet every week. There's about 20 of them from around the country. And they're 15 to 20 years old, I call it my Sheik's Freaks Mastermind group. And they're just an amazing group of guys who all want, they're all aspire to buy and invest in real estate in the next two or three years. And most of them will be doing it through a house hack. 
So I love talking about that with those guys. They, they call me and text me all the time and we have our weekly meeting. We all are in a Slack group together where we communicate through that on a daily basis. And I just kind of serve as their mentor or facilitator. And they're amazing. They're so motivated and they really do understand money and, and how to build it and how investing in real estate can build their wealth. And it's absolutely possible for someone who's 18, 19, 20 to get a two-year plan in place and buy a property pretty quick. So is a plan to get them like a 3.5% down FHA loan to get their first house hack? Yeah, that's probably the most common plan for them is, and people that age who are doing it is to get an FHA loan on a house house act property, which is 3.5% down. But another option is just a conventional loan, which would be, you know, possibly 5% down. And then they can get that first property. So there's a few things they need to do over about a two-year period, establishing an income stream because the lender is going to want to see that they can pay that mortgage, saving up for a down payment. Although it's not huge because you're only putting 3.5 or 5% down, they still do need to have some money saved up. And, you know, I strongly urge them to have not just the money for a down payment, but you got to have about 10 grand in the bank too after the purchase for minor fix-up and capital expenditures that, that might come up in those first few months, just so you're prepared and you have a cushion. And then they need to keep learning. And that's what, you know, this group that I'm referring to, this mastermind I work with, they are just like sponges soaking up everything. They're reading tons of books, podcasts, websites, and then they feed off each other too. And they hold each other accountable. It's a great group. I'm really proud of those guys and happy to work with them. No, it sounds like an awesome group. Uh, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that someone has when they're first getting started in the financial independence movement? I'll answer that in two parts. It depends on age. If they're young, let's say they're 30 or younger, probably the largest barrier is just believing that you can do it. And the second part of that for them would be having someone kind of mentor them and, and help them along. And to be honest, people in their early 20s generally don't think about money. Um, it's not a normal thing for someone young like that to think about their money really at all, other than, hey, I know I make $4,000 a month, so I'm going to spend $4,000 a month. If they even think that much, that's probably more than average. So that's probably the biggest barrier for younger people in the fire movement is that they're just not trained to think about money. And then for older people, I would say 30s, 40s and up, the biggest barrier is lifestyle creep, where probably by the time someone's in their 30s or 40s, they've already escalated the amount of money they spend on a monthly basis. Maybe they have a, an expensive car loan. Maybe they've moved into a house that's bigger than what they actually need, but they really love living there. Maybe they're just, they have subscriptions or they're used to taking certain vacations. Maybe they bought a timeshare. They've already spent money and they knew that they made X amount and then they're spending X amount. And so to start saving, they might be making a really good income, but to start saving money at a rate that's going to get them on that path to financial independence, they would have to really look at their lifestyle and say, what are my housing costs? What are my transportation costs? What are my food costs? What are my entertainment costs? And where can I cut? I think it's much easier for a young person to just not escalate their spending as they start to make more money than it is for someone older to, to decrease their spending once they're used to spending that much. And one of the things I really don't appreciate about our American society is I think we're all taught through marketing messages, really, that however much you make, you should spend that much. If you make $50,000 a year, then you should and you can and you deserve to spend $50,000 a year. If you make 100,000, then spend 100. If you make a million dollars a year, you should be spending a million dollars a year because you deserve it and you only live once. And 
our society really wants, urges people to spend everything they make. And unfortunately, that's just not a really good financial decision, unless you want to work until you're 65 years old um, and wait till then until you retire. But the FIRE movement is all about, instead of that savings rate being zero or 5%, let's try and kick that up to 40, 50, 60%. And if you do that over five or 10 years, you're going to be close to financial independence. It's very doable, but your lifestyle has to change. I mean, on top of that, once you reduce your expenses, then you need less money to retire in the first place. So it's like a win-win situation. Exactly. Yeah. If you're comfortable and happy living on $50,000 a year, you're going to reach financial independence way before someone who likes to spend or they're used to spending $150,000 a year. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, I mean, I was house hacking my home here as well. Same as you. I had some college buddies from Los Angeles who need to move up here to the Bay Area. And so when they moved up, I said, hey, come live with me. I'll give you the homey hookup, right? So it's very low rent. And I also had some properties over in Jacksonville, Florida. So that covered my expenses. So basically like in Bay Area and most places with high cost of living expenses, most of it is from like the rent or from your mortgage. But once you take care of that, then all you really have is like gas and food and you don't really need that much to quote unquote retire. And then you can focus on doing what you're passionate about, which is what you say, like the main purpose of the fire movement. It's not to just chill and watch TV and play games all day, but it's allow you to do your passions full time without worrying about your finances. That's exactly right. One of my favorite books, Your Money or Your Life, Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez, they, they, they talk about that throughout the whole book, that financial independence is it's not about money. It's about your freedom of your time the freedom of choice to spend your time how you would like to spend it. And maybe you choose to spend it working, but at least you have the option because you could do so many other things. You could open a business that you've always wanted to start that's helping other people. That is a business that you're passionate about. But if you're spending every dollar you make and you're living paycheck to paycheck and you don't have an emergency fund, that's impossible to do. You don't have the option of taking a year off. You don't have the option of taking on a risk like starting a new business and your time is delegated for you, at least the 40 to 60 hours a week that you have to report to work every week. So yeah, financial independence is really about the freedom of choice to spend your time how you would like to. And oftentimes when people reach FI, they choose to spend that time, part of that time continuing to make money for themselves and then also giving back and helping others. Mm -hmm. So I have a question for you, and I'm not really sure to ask this without sounding offensive, but you know, it's, this is not going to be an offensive question. But in general, from what I understand, you know, teachers aren't you know, very well paid, right? And it is, for the most part, I haven't heard any other teachers who are talking about you know, financial independence or retiring early. You know, they, they mostly do it because they want to help students. But like my friends who are teachers, they have no aspirations of becoming millionaires. They're like, that's not my path. I was wondering, like, how did you get into it? And, you know, what are your thoughts of, like, say, you know, you have people who work with you who probably need your messaging as well? It's a good question. Public school teachers don't make a lot of money. It's, it's not a secret. You know, we're never, it's a good life. It's a good career. Um, you can make a great living as a, as a teacher. I, I don't knock it. And it's super rewarding and fulfilling. And like I said, I love my job. And my wife is a teacher as well. So we're both teachers. So our income, we knew from the get-go, was never going to be you know, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars a year. We were never going to be having incomes to that level, but that's not why we became teachers. So, but there are definitely other teachers out there who are 
pursuing Phi, who have reached Phi, the different podcasts and stuff I listen to, I, I have heard other teachers who have reached Phi and, and quit their jobs. And my wife's kind of a good example. When we, when we met, we were both full-time teachers and we started doing the real estate stuff more heavily and we're starting to buy more properties. And so we kind of had a plan laid out where she would go to halftime at one point and then eventually be able to retire from teaching altogether and go to full-time real estate. And we've now hit that. So she has taught halftime the last three years. And it looks like she'll probably teach full-time this fall semester. But when the halfway through the year, she will retire from teaching altogether. So she'll be out of teaching. Her situation is a little different. She's been teaching longer than I have, and she teaches elementary school and pretty underserved communities, um, low-income communities. And it's a super challenging job. She's done it for 19 years, I think. And, and she's kind of done. She still loves the kids, but it's kind of worn her out and she's ready to be done teaching. So we were able to, through real estate and passive income generated from real estate, we got her to halftime. And now very soon she'll be done teaching altogether. Now, like I said, she's still going to be working. She manages most of our properties. She's a real estate agent herself. And she does some notary signing stuff as well as a side hustle. So she's not going to be doing nothing. She's going to be as busy as probably a full-time job, but she now gets to choose how she spends her time and where she spends her time. And yeah, so luckily I see myself working my job full-time for a while still. I guess that could always change, but yeah. So we're doing what we want to do. I guess that's the bottom line. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are, I guess we don't have enough, a lot of income they have a challenge of not being able to afford properties or maybe they even have the mindset that I can't do this because you know I'm living paycheck to paycheck. What kind of advice do you have for people who are in that situation? Yeah, that's definitely a real thing. If you're not making a lot of money or you have no money saved up, maybe you're in a hole. Maybe you have a ton of credit card debt and student loan debt. And the idea of investing in real estate seems like a million miles away. That's a real thing. So the advice I would give those people, well, first, if, if you have a lot of debt, consumer debt, like credit card debt, that, that's got to be your number one goal is to get that stuff paid off. So you might need to change your lifestyle a little bit. Some of those choices can be difficult. Maybe it does mean moving into a less expensive living situation, maybe where you do have roommates. Maybe you don't live in the downtown condo. I'm not saying someone did, but if you're paying the high end of market rent for a one or two bedroom you can look at a medium to low market rent in a different neighborhood. If you have a brand new car, you could sell it and take that money, buy a dependable used car and whatever's left over, put it towards your credit card debt. I'm not saying people should do that, but there are ways where you could speed up the process to pay off that credit card debt. If you have it, you first got to get rid of that. Student loan debt, not so much. Um, tends to be a lot lower interest. And so some people are investing in real estate, even though they have student loan debt. And I totally understand that. I don't knock those people because they're just being smart with their money. If your student loan debt is at 3%, I don't think that's something you have to knock out right away. Now, if you have a low income and you are debt-free, but let's say your net worth is basically zero, examine some ways to make some extra money, a side hustle, a part-time job at night or on weekends. There's all different kinds of things you can do. I mean, you can do something as simple as dog walking, house sitting, lawn care for people in your neighborhood and just make some extra money and start saving what you can to buy a property. And like we were talking about house hacking, of course, it depends on the market you're in. But if you're going to buy, let's say a $200,000 property 
and 5% down, that, if I'm doing the math right, is $10,000. It shouldn't take people too long to save up $10,000. Now, that might be presumptive of me, depending on the situation, but that can be done. It might take you two or three years to save up that money, but it is doable. It is doable, but it sometimes does take sacrifice and some lifestyle changes that can be difficult. But I think once you get used to it, then that's just what you get used to. Do you have any tips on how to qualify for the loans? Because I know a lot of people get stuck with the whole DTI issue where their income isn't high enough to support the mortgage they want to get. So what I tell my young people, because that's their number one barrier to getting a property is the DTI. The, you know, they're probably working mostly part-time jobs because they're students. So I tell them there's a couple ways to kind of help yourself out there. Well, one, if you're able to knock a part-time job up to full-time, then that can look very favorable to a bank. When you go to apply for that mortgage, they're going to want to see usually the last two months worth of pay stubs. And if those are both full-time, that can help you out, even though maybe over the last two years, you were doing mostly part-time. If you're doing side hustles and DTI is a concern for you, then make sure those side hustles are W-2 jobs. So a lot of the ones I named like walking dogs and mowing lawns, those aren't going to be W-2 jobs. Go work for a company that's going to pay you a monthly paycheck and you're on their payroll. So maybe you're working at a restaurant nights or weekends, something like that, where you're going to have monthly income that's provable to the lender. So you can say, I have a full-time job. I have a part-time job. Here's the W-2s. Here's the pay stubs. This is my monthly income level now. That can help out too. Yeah. You mentioned that you have 12 houses in Colorado and three in Michigan, which is a lot of properties. How are you guys able to do that with your incomes? By using different strategies. One of them, I'll just name some strategies. If you want me to explain more about them, Sean, just let me know. So one of the strategies is we bought one of those properties as a primary residence and we did live there for about a year and a half. So we put 5% down and that equated to, I think, $8,500 because the property, I think we bought it for 168,000 or something like that. So not a lot of money out of our pocket. And it was a primary residence for a year and a half. It was a two bedroom condo. We lived there by ourselves. And then when we moved out, we just switched the use into a rental property and now we rent it out that way. Another way is we've used the Burr method. So you mentioned that we do own three properties in Michigan, just in a suburb of Detroit. I mean, there's a whole book, there's books about the Burr method. So I'll try to just make it simple and quick. But the strategy there is you buy a property all cash and the properties we're buying in Detroit. When you say all cash, people go, wow. But the houses we're buying in Detroit, which I think all three of them, were three bedroom, one bath houses. Average price for us is about $55,000. And then we fix it up. Generally, they're houses that need a good amount of work. And so we hire a contractor to go in and make it livable, but not like high end. We're just looking for it to be a, a solid rental and a safe, clean living situation for our tenants. So they'll fix up the property. That might take 20,000. But then in the process of refinancing that, once you have a tenant in, you can get most, if not sometimes all of the money you've spent back out of that property and then go invest it in a new property. Um, And you can keep doing that over and over. It does take time. It's usually at least six months before you can take your money out and put it into a new one. But that's how we've done those three in Detroit. So we own three houses out there now, and we've probably done that all with under $100,000. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't have $100,000. But you know, those were properties... 12, well, 13, 14, and 15 for us. The first properties we had were also less expensive. And it's, it's a snowball effect. Like any other investment, compounding interest kind of is the same concept in real estate. 
you get one and that generates some income. You can save more because that's giving you some cash flow. Then you can go out and buy another one, but it doesn't take you as long to save for that one. And you start to kind of snowball on top of each other. And it does take time. Uh, real estate investing is not a get rich quick plan. If it works that way, great. But I just don't know that it does. It's a get rich slow. And it's not even rich. It's about building wealth, building wealth slow. So we've been at it for, my wife started a little bit before me, seven years for the properties in our portfolio, but it is doable. You just have to be patient. So basically you guys buy properties, it takes a long time to save for the first one, but then over time you build equity into it. Maybe you can tap some of the equity out and then use that to, as a down payment. But then also because you're renting out some of the rooms, that counts as income that goes towards your DTI, which means you can qualify for these bigger loans and then keep going from there. Correct. Yeah, once you own a property and you have tenants in there, if you're applying for another mortgage, and all you have to do is show the underwriter for that lender that, yes, we own this property. Yes, we have a mortgage payment associated with that property. But here's the lease we have with that tenant that shows that they are paying us this amount of rent every month. And here's our bank statements that show that rent is coming in on a regular basis. So they won't count that against your DTI because you're not paying it. Your tenants are. Right. So what would you say financial independence looks like for you and your wife? Probably different than most. I would say that the typical way people go about financial independence is they have a number that they know they need to reach that will prove to them that they have achieved financial independence. We're a little different because my wife and I, well, so I have a job that I love and I don't really want to leave the job. And there's also a pension associated with my job. So even if I was financially independent and could quit my job and wanted to quit my job, I probably would think twice before I did because I have a pension in place if I stay there another, I think in another seven years, I would start getting some real benefit out of it when I retire. And some people just start, they get so caught up in, like say, real estate investing, they want to own 50 properties, they want to own 100 properties. And there's nothing wrong with that. But my wife and I are not of that mindset. We want to own maybe another five to 10 properties, then we are done. We will not buy any more we'll simply just start paying off the mortgages for those properties. So for us, like I said, right now, we're both kind of doing what we want. The job I have, I love, and I want to do it. My wife is retiring from teaching very soon. full, So she'll be full-time real estate, which is what she wants to do. She enjoys that. She's in the process of doing that, creating wealth for us and not somebody else. So we don't really have a number. We just know that we're building our wealth and it's working for us and we're happy with what we're doing. And, you know, in five or 10 years, we, we will both be done with full-time work and we'll go from there. But for right now, it's what we need it to be. That's exciting. Yeah. There's a lot of people who talk about financial independence and they need like $10,000 a month to retire. Or some people say $20,000 a month to retire because they have that lifestyle creep. You know, they were lawyers and now they say, oh, I, I can't afford my house if I don't have $20,000 a month or whatever. So it's a choice. Everything is a choice. Yeah. If you have a high level of lifestyle and you enjoy nice things and you want to have the luxury car and the six bedroom house and the nice vacations, then yeah, it's going to be tougher to get to financial independence. But I actually just wrote an article for my blog about, about happiness and the fact that after a certain income, it's been shown through various, a number of studies that happiness will not increase the more you make after a certain point. So once you can pay for your basic needs and then a little bit extra, some fun and entertainment. Making more money doesn't necessarily mean that you're happier. 
Actually, it's been shown that it makes you less happy because it, the more material possessions you have, sometimes the more stress and maintenance and time it takes to manage all that stuff. So everyone's different, but for us, we're comfortable with where we're at. We have cars that are a few years old. They're paid off, but they run well. We have a house that is very nice, three-bedroom house. It has what we need and we, we love it. We don't need a bigger house. We don't want a bigger house. We don't want brand new cars. We go on vacations, but we enjoy the outdoors of Colorado. That's why we live here. So we don't necessarily need to stay in a five-star resort. We can you know, stay in a budget hotel or even camp for a night or two. And that's what makes us happy. And luckily, it's also not tied into a super high spending budget. So we're happy with that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, to your point, like, I can't imagine going to the beach wearing a Rolex, right? I'd be too scared of the stands and mess it up or whatever. Yeah. I have a buddy, hopefully he doesn't hear this podcast, but he got a job recently where he went from like a very comfortable position where he was doing really well into a position where he was just paid a lot more. I think maybe like a 50% increase in pay, but so much more responsibility. You know, you get chewed out by the boss, you get yelled at, stressful work environment where you have office politics. And he was like, dude, this extra money, like, it's not worth it. You know, like, I can't even sleep at night. I'm thinking about work all day. Yeah. And how old is he, roughly? Same age as me. Okay. That's, that's kind of the corporate trick. And I'm not saying this is bad. If people have a corporate job and they love it, then by all means, go for it. But when you graduate from college, the American dream tells you, well, now you have to get a job and you got to work hard to advance and get promoted and, and get raises and and be able to buy the really nice stuff that you're supposed to have if you're successful. What they don't tell you is that when you get that corporate job, it's not a 40-hour-a-week job. Oftentimes, it's 60 or 70 hours a week. And they don't say that. That's not on the job description. But when your boss comes to you and says, this is what I need you to do, and this is what you need to do in order to be a good employee. And by the way, if you ever want to get promoted, this is what you need to do to be a good employee. And then you start figuring out, well, what they need me to do is going to take me 60 hours, 70 hours a week. And that works for some people. But the trade-off is what Vicky Robin would say from your money, your life is you're trading your time for money. And you really have to ask yourself, what is my time worth and how much am I willing to sell? Because you only have so much time. In a week, you only have so many hours. And if you choose to spend X amount of them at work, that's fewer. The more you spend at work, that's fewer that you get to do fewer hours that you get to spend doing the things that actually make you happy, like hanging out with your friends or family or going to a movie or going to the beach or hiking in the mountains. But it's easy. Young people are always so energetic and motivated and go-getters. And you know they just kind of fall into that lifestyle of working 60 or 70 hours a week. And they don't even think about it because a lot of their friends are doing the same thing. But Time flies and then you get to be in your 30s and 40s and you look back and go, wow, what was I? Those were the best years of my life. And I spent all of those hours in a cubicle or in an office or traveling for work and now I can't have them back. So yeah, like going back to my original goal is just to educate young people about their different option and, and make it clear to them that you know you have this option, A, B, C, D, you have all these different options. Take what you now know about all those options and decide what's best for you. Because no one can tell anyone what's best for them. But it's, we're all in a better situation when we know what our options are and we can make educated decisions based on that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Have you heard the term Henry before? Henry? No. Okay. So it's a new acronym, similar to the FIRE movement, but with a negative connotation. It's a high earner, not rich yet. 
So it's basically the opposite of fire. They're making a lot of money, but they're not rich yet, mostly because of this creep, right? They're making, they're buying more expensive things, but they're having, you know, yeah. That's the American way. We're taught to spend everything we make and then some. I mean, if you have credit card debt, it's because you're spending more than you make or more than you have. And again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but there are other options that will allow you to save and invest and retire, quote unquote, retire or reach financial independence at a much earlier age than 65, which if you're spending everything you make, you better be prepared to work till you're 65 and maybe even longer. And are you telling any of your students to read certain books to get inspired? Definitely. My two go-tos for every young person, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and The Richest Man in Babylon. And now if they're younger, if they're early teens, Robert Kiyosaki, who's the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad for Teens. So if they're maybe younger than 15, I would steer them to that book and have them read the actual Rich Dad, Poor Dad a few years down the road. And I actually think someone mentioned to me the other day, there might be a teen version of The Richest Man in Babylon, although I don't think there needs to be because that book's pretty easy read. So those two are my go-tos for every young person because it's really about the fundamentals of money and thinking about it in a way of creating wealth. And yeah, a lot of the young people I work with were inspired by those books and that's kind of what got them started in their path towards early financial independence. And are you able to like teach this in the curriculum you teach at school or is this kind of like an outside school program that you're helping people out with? Good question. So both the curriculum I teach at school does not have financial independence concepts and strategies built in it, but I do have some leeway as a teacher to branch off into similar topics, which these are, that are beneficial to kids and that I'm passionate about. So I think the kids definitely feed off of that. So as long as I cover what I need to, you know, if I have some extra time in a given week, which I usually do, I can talk about some of these concepts. And then the kids that I work with, and I say kids, but some of them are 20, that I work with outside of school, just on my own, obviously I can teach them and talk to them whatever I want. And they're listening because they're interested. We have connected because they have a very high level of interest in the financial independence stuff. So they just eat it up, which is it's like a teacher's best dream when, you know, when I'm in that Slack group or that Zoom call with those kids and there's about 19 that are in there right now, they are all active, engaged learners. And when I say something, they actually pay attention. And it's not that way in a classroom. I mean, some of your kids are going to, but there's always a handful that are not engaged. No matter what you teach, that's just the nature of the game as a teacher. So my wife and I laugh at how that Slack group that I manage, the Sheik's Freaks Mastermind group, it is the teacher's best scenario because they're all interested and they're all, you know, maybe taking notes and engaged and really vested in what they're learning. That's great. I mean, honestly, that's probably one of my dreams too. Like in the future, I would love to create a program that teaches, you know, younger adults or, you know, teens about financial independence and, you know, possibly through real estate investing. Actually, I spoke to my high school in March of last year. Fantastic. Yeah. My cross country track coach was still there. And she's like, hey, come talk to my students. She runs like an elective program similar to yours. And then I just talked about my experience. And they were all like really excited about it. So did you enjoy it? Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of nerve wracking, right? And it is also kind of scary to see that, dang, I'm like 10, 12 years older than all these kids here. <laughs> yeah, time does fly by fast. But I'm sure that they still related to you because you're younger than probably their average teacher. And they definitely listen to you because you're doing it, right? When I bring guest speakers into my classroom, I make sure they're people that they're not just going to talk about it, that they're actually doing the strategies that they're 
telling the kids about. And so the question and answer sessions are always amazing and the kids are engaged. And like I said, some of them will use the information, some of them won't, but it's best if they at least have the knowledge about the different options available to them. Right. And so what are your plans with your group? Are you trying to grow it? It is growing. We seem to add another member or two every week, but I've told the members, you know, I want this to be your group. So it's very autonomous for them. I'm really just a facilitator in there to answer questions and, and give my two cents when I can. So they, they've decided they want to cap the group at 20. And we're basically there right now. But not all the members are active. There's two or three that aren't very active. So we may kind of weed them out and then have room to add a few more. But I definitely see that there's a, a growing demand for young people interested in this to have a group like this Sheik's Freaks Mastermind that I have going on. So I have a couple of kids right now that are kind of on a waiting list. And uh, if that gets to be five or 10, I might start another group completely separate because in the group, they really get to know each other. They call each other outside the group. They text each other outside the group. They're messing each other, DMing each other in the Slack group and they build relationships and they hold each other accountable. So, and that's something that they couldn't get in their high school or even their friend group in their hometown because, you know, a very small percentage of teenagers or early 20s are, are that into financial independence concepts. So I think there is a growing need and I think I probably will start another group in the future. If they're willing to do it, then I'm willing to be there and help them out. So what's your like overall plan for the future? Do you plan creating educational programs for teens? Kind of. So I'm in the process of writing a book and it is going to be a book about financial independence and included in there will be real estate investing strategies, but it's not a real estate investing book. It's a financial independence book. And it will be specifically for, I would say, young people ages 14 to 22. And it's going to go over everything from, I kind of started writing the book as if the person reading it knew nothing, nothing about personal finance, nothing about financial independence, definitely nothing about real estate investing. So I it was kind of a daunting task. I'd say I'm about halfway done with the book and I'm really excited. It's fun to work on it, but hopefully that'll be out within the year. And that's also going to include a workbook where kind of like a checklist. One of the things I've learned from my students in my classroom, when I have guest speakers come in, come in one time, I had Scott Trenchin, who lives here in Denver from Bigger Pockets, And he asked the question at the end of the class. He said, when I come back next time, what do you guys want me to talk about? to the students. And one of the students raised their hand and said, I get all this. It makes under, it makes sense. I'm totally on board. I just want someone to tell me what I need to do and when I need to do it, which is kind of the, our public school system has taught kids to learn that way. Just tell me what to do and tell me when to do it and I will do it. But that is the way they go about things. So the idea of a checklist, like, you know, when you turn 16, do these five things. When you turn 17, do these things. And then as they get older, it starts to break into more like four-month increments. So the workbook will walk them through those different four-month increments and say, okay, in this four months, you need to read this book. You need to do, you need to talk, you need to find a mentor. You need to open a brokerage account. You need to apply for your second credit card and you need to analyze some property, whatever it might be. And then walk them through from say age 16, 17 until 21, 22, but the things they should be doing all on that path. And of course, there's going to be deviations because everyone will have different interests and different goals. But just at least give them an outline of what they could do and what they should do to, to set themselves up for early financial independence. So along with that, I have the Sheik's Freaks community that I'm starting to build. I have a blog site where I post articles that are specifically for young people. There's an Instagram page that goes along with that. 
that's doing really well. And then we're also now starting to a YouTube channel and a Facebook page. So it's, it's all free. It's all just to help young people learn about the option of early financial independence. And if they're interested in real estate investing as a way to achieve that, there's definitely information there to be had for that as well. Awesome. Sounds like you have a lot of things going on for you in the future. Yeah, it's exciting. And I really thoroughly enjoy I mean, my passions are working with young people, personal finance, financial independence, that movement, and real estate investing. So you throw all that into one, this Sheik's Freaks community that I'm building. And it is, it is fun. Like I really enjoy doing it and connecting with the young. And I really enjoy hearing their success stories. What feeds me is the guys in that Sheik's Freaks mastermind Slack group, you know, they'll post in there, hey, I just got a, a job with a property manager or, hey, I just learned about this type of creative financing. And to see them learn and grow and take actual steps towards a better financial future for themselves, that's just adding fuel to the fire for me. And I just want to keep helping. So, yeah. It's one thing to have that feeling for yourself where you're doing really well. And it's another feeling of when you give back and they're successful because of your advice. So like when I get people who message me because of the podcast or my YouTube videos, it just feels so amazing. Yeah, that's the rewarding part. I mean, that's kind of why I became a teacher too. But I'm sure you felt it, Sean, too, when you talked to those students at your high school and they were asking questions and you could just see light bulbs starting to go off and their eyes kind of open up and you know the wheels start turning and they're thinking about, well, if he's doing it and he did it, why can't I do this? That's when it really becomes meaningful. And yeah, once you, I mean, my wife and I are well on our path to financial independence. We're very comfortable and we're very lucky. And we know that we've to find this information, even when we did, which was in our late 30s, early 40s, when we really kind of started working the financial independence strategies, we felt like we were lucky. So now that we're well on our way, I definitely am all about sharing that knowledge to anyone who wants to know about it, especially young people, because that's what I enjoy most. Perfect. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Do you have any last tips for our listeners before we finish up? I would say a general tip, if you're young and you're listening to this, by young, I'll say 25 or younger, don't feel like investing in real estate or retiring early is impossible. It is not. It is totally doable. I have I know many people who have retired or, again, retired is kind of a weird word because that kind of connotates that you stop working. Now, they've continued working, but in ways that they want to when they want to. But I, I know a lot of people who have done it in their mid to late 20s and they're financially independent. Um, and their lives are forever changed. They have all that. They have decades of their time back now. So if you're young, just keep reading, keep learning. Anybody listening to this podcast who's young and wants to learn more can definitely reach out to me. I'm, I talk to young people on the phone at probably every other day, answering questions and giving advice and happy to do it. So, And how can people get in contact with you? There's a couple different ways. They can email me at sheiksfreaks at gmail.com. And that is... So my last name is Sheeks, S-H-E-E-K-S, and then Freaks, F-R-E-A-K-S. So SheeksFreaks.com. The reason that I chose that is, well, one, it rhymes. But if you are young and you think about your money, that is not a normal thing. You are definitely abnormal and different and unique. So you are a freak and in a very good way. So that's where the Sheeks Freaks comes from. So SheeksFreaks.gmail.com. They can also find me on Instagram, Sheeks Freaks on Instagram. The YouTube channel is Sheeks Freaks. And I also check my LinkedIn and bigger pockets accounts every day as well. Perfect. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm sure you're definitely helping out a lot of people who need to hear this information. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah. And thank you, Sean, for having me. And hopefully you're right. I'm 
it's all about helping others and keep up, keep doing what you're doing, Sean. It's good stuff. Cool. Thanks. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Young people need to learn about key financial concepts as early as possible. The traditional school system doesn't cover these topics and are creating financially illiterate adults across the country. We need to do what we can to stay educated and learn how to think about our money. Learn about different financial strategies and start joining groups that talk about the subject. Work on increasing your passive income streams and don't get caught in the rat race. By learning how to invest and becoming financially literate, you'll be able to create your future on your terms. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.